it's good to worship. Thank you for praying for our children. Um, and we also get the, the privilege of opening God's word together today. Uh, we're in Matthew 5. This semester we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I was, if, you, if you've been here this semester, I was with you the first few weeks. And last week we uh, had the privilege of having Michael Powell here speaking. Um, I'll be speaking the majority of this semester, but we'll have two other men speaking later on in this semester. And I just, I just want you to know that I believe that's a really good thing. I, I look back on my 13-year-old self wondering, what's, what's it like to be a man who's serious about following the Lord? And, you know, I have a day job. Michael Powell has a day job. And if you're a 13-year-old boy here, most likely the Lord is calling you to earn a living, to love a family, and to be passionate about God's word. And that's an amazing thing. And even if you're not a 13-year-old boy, God is probably calling you to that too, right? But, but I, I don't know why, you know, that was the time in my life where I started wondering, you know, what's life actually about? And I am so profoundly blessed for the people who serve this body full-time vocationally. Uh, they do so many things that we see, and they do so many things that we don't see. But I think also just a profound blessing is us being the body of Christ, volunteering, stepping in, and uh, making much of the Lord's name, because that's what we're passionate about. Um, just, just a bit of backstory for those of you that uh, might not know. In last January, uh, we said goodbye to our senior pastors. And so since then, we've been having uh, elders and other people come in and, and open the word of God together. Um, that is a good thing. That's not the, the permanent solution. Uh, if you were here in May, we, we did um, pray for a pastor search committee, and we've begun advertising uh, to date, we have 122 people who've applied for that position. Of those, I'd say uh, somewhere around 20 of them, uh, you wouldn't wince if they were up here teaching you. Uh, but uh, maybe that's too strong. But 20 of them were really strong candidates. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, we, we are in a position now where uh, we, I think we've, we've had five conversations with the person we're examining most closely, we're going to have another Skype conversation this week, just so you sort of know what that process looks like. Um, I, I mean, you should really be thinking about a senior pastor much less like a shift manager at Wendy's and much more like a marriage. Because, I mean, realistically, the person who comes maybe doing my children's wedding, right? It's possible they could be doing my funeral. This is a part of our family, right? And so this, this process is, is slow, and um, the, the process, the way, the way it'll roll out is uh, when we decide that there's, there's somebody serious enough to bring to Nacogdoches, he and his wife will come, and they'll just come privately. They'll, they'll worship with us. They'll open the word with us. You probably won't even know they're here. Uh, we do that because we don't want them to be caught by surprise or be unhappy either. 
uh, uh, we'll meet with them, we'll send them home, we'll spend some time praying and reflecting separately. If we both feel like the Lord is moving us forward, we'll bring him back to Nacogdoches. He will open God's word with us on a Sunday morning. That afternoon, he and his wife, assuming he's married, uh, will uh, have a sort of a get-to-know-you. You're invited to come and get to know his heart a little bit. There'll be three days for sort of feedback and reflection. And at the end of those three days, ultimately, it's the elder's responsibility to make a decision with that feedback. So that's just a sort of a picture on where we are. Um, but in the short term, I, I honestly think it's just such a blessing to have so many people um, combining to help us to worship. I mean, just the blessing of, of these folks here, of, of Jesse and Casey and Ryan and Kurt and Todd, you know, uh, Susanna, the people that weren't up here today who've been faithful, you know, Wes and Jonathan. These are amazing folks that are leading us into worship, which is the right and fitting way for us to open up the Word of God. We come to the Word of God because the one who wrote it is faithful. Because the one who wrote it is worthy of being studied, of being poured into. And the goal is not to just have this be a reflection that takes, you know, 30 minutes of your time, but to have this be something that changes who you are and who I am. And so one last piece before we get into the actual text today. One thing that I think is really special this week, this semester, is not only are we reflecting through the sermons on Sunday, but we also have a weekly uh, reflection or blog from a member of our congregation. And um, that comes out in the week-to-week -week email, if you're interested there. Uh, this last week was, was Kim Weir. You know, last week we studied what the Lord said about divorce. And it was challenging. It was stretching. And her, her blog was just brilliant, really, I think. Uh, if you missed it, you can always go to the website, gracebiblechurch.com, and there's a tab for blogs. But um, I actually had some people mention to me that they sort of had trouble finding that. So... Uh, Using a bit of technology, uh, this is remind.com. If you text 81010 at 272H78, um, it'll, it'll text you back and say, what's your name? And then every week, you'll actually get a text. And so you can get that, that reflection. This week, we're talking about oaths and honesty. And Zach Martin has a really, really some great words sort of midweek to bring us back to God's word. Uh, so I'd commend it, whether you do it this way, whether you go to the webpage, whether you get an email, continue to reflect on God's word. And we get to start now. So uh, we are in Matthew 5. We are um, sort of, what is it? Maybe a quarter of the way into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I've sort of made a point of coming back to the themes, right? Jesus sewed this together, and he sewed it together really wisely. He started out with this sort of point. He said, uh, what is it here? It, he said, I'm forgetting the verb. <laughs> it, God is your heavenly father, but I forgot the verb I put up there. Somebody help me out. It's in the bulletin. Uh-oh. Treasure, there we go, treasure. I tried to come up with snazzy words, but God, your heavenly Father, right? Treasure him. Um, there we go. There's my cheat sheet. Um, 
you know, the Old Testament, I think I mentioned this to you, has God listed as Father 15 times. Then in the 20 minutes of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to God as our Father in heaven 17 times, more than the entire Old Testament. This is really important that we see God accurately, that we see who God is. Because until we see God accurately, it's very hard to get to the second piece, which is trust that his ways are wonderful. Jesus is unpacking, and today he'll, he'll unpack another piece of God's way of living. And without trusting that his way is wonderful, it's very hard to get to the last piece, which is flourish by following wholeheartedly. So we had this pattern, uh, and we started, what was it, two weeks ago with murder. And it really goes through, incidentally, the last five of the Ten Commandments. And uh, I have those sort of listed there. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You've heard it said, you've heard it said. And then what Jesus is saying is, can you see God's heart behind what's happening here? God is really loving in giving these commands. And so the commands aren't intended to be burdensome. This is not intended to be some sort of a checklist that you can say, oh, I'm so glad I'm done with those things. Now I'm going to lunch, right? This is supposed to be something that is wonderful, something that is life-giving. And we are invited to flourish. Our lives are invited to blossom by wholeheartedly following these things, allowing them to change our lives. And so you see this pattern again and again. You've heard, you've heard, you've heard. But I tell you, says Jesus. But I tell you, and I sort of, I, I want you to look at sort of what Jesus is doing. He's taking something, as, as Michael said last week, that's easy to measure. Did I murder anyone in the last week? Uh, pretty easy to tell, right? <laughs> Did I commit adultery? Check, right? Uh, well, and he's saying, God sees your heart. Okay, you didn't murder someone. Were you hateful? Did you wish they'd die? You know, uh, God sees your heart. Okay, you didn't commit adultery. Uh, breaking oaths. Again, what you'll see is that the people of Jesus' day, particularly the Pharisees, had made this some sort of thing that was so legalistic, it was very easy to measure, but it paid no attention to God's heart and it ignored where your heart was. So, with that sort of entry, let's jump into the passage today. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people ago, long ago, do not break your oaths, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So, if this were just a checklist, this would be really easy. Did anybody swear by Jerusalem today? <laughs> Woohoo! Nacogdoches? Nope. Okay. Check that off the list. So culturally, this is a little bit different than where we're at because, uh, you know, this is, this is a culture of, of honor, and so they are associating the honor of their word with something else that is considered honorable, okay? So if you swear by heaven, you are saying, 
the thing that I'm saying to you is as trustworthy as heaven itself or as the majestic city Jerusalem that they would have put a lot of trust in. Um, and this is, you know, the, the weird thing about Jesus uh, comparing these two things and then calling the people that don't do this hypocrites is it's not like murder or don't murder. It's not like do or don't. It's, it's like, why would you behave this way? So I want to go back just a little context. This would have been context that Jesus' entire um, audience would have been very familiar with. So I think it's fair that we sort of get up to speed. Uh, Leviticus 19, God says to the people of Israel, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In Deuteronomy 23, he says to his people, whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And then uh, I talked about the latter five of the Ten Commandments. Actually, the third commandment in Exodus 20 is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And I know somehow, I don't know, when I learned that in third grade, somehow uh, I thought it was about swearing. And... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which uh, that is a part of oaths, but I think the largest sense of that command is you are not to use my name and associate my name with things that are not worthy of my character. Don't use my name wrongly. Don't associate things with my name wrongly. And so this is, this is sort of the, the backdrop of, of these people, and so... What they did was, they said, wow, you know, this is, this is tricky because we really want to associate um, things of authority with, with our words because that'll make it more impressive when I say, you know, I promise by this or that. And so they've gotten into this sort of like clever scheme of what? Wrapping, wrapping their words in promises, some of which were true and some of which weren't so true, okay? And so here's the fundamental distortion as I see it. The fundamental distortion sort of that came down here is on some things, I need to be kind of more truthful than other things. On some things, you know, it's okay if I sort of, I don't know, either misrepresent what has been happening or I say, well, I'll do this and then change my mind later. You know, there, but there are some things they're really important to be honest about, but there are other things not so much. Um, it's interesting. The Sermon on the Mount, nearly every topic in it, Matthew later in his gospel actually unpacks in a more lengthy uh, manner. And, and it's interesting to sort of go to that. Uh, this section on oaths he actually unpacks in Matthew 23. So it's a little bit long, but I do want to just just give you a perspective because, frankly, it's so weird to me. Um, it's really weird if you go to another culture how easy it is to sort of see their flaws and the silly things they do. It's sort of like, oh, how could they do that? It's a little harder to sort of look back at us, at myself, and say, wow, that's kind of silly. But here's the silly thing that they were doing, okay? Jesus, Jesus is talking uh, to the Pharisees here in Matthew 23, 16, and he says, Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. 
But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. You, right, I mean, so the temple, you can say, I promise that I'll bring you the grain on Tuesday by the temple. But that doesn't really count. But if I said by the gold in the temple, now that would count, right? Huh? You know, and, and Jesus is saying, uh, you fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, right? They would, they would bring their sacrifices to an altar in the temple. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Come on, what are you talking about? Well, this was sort of the thing that over time, I'm sure little by little, that's the thing about dishonesty. At the first, it maybe didn't seem like such a big deal. Well, the gift on the altar is kind of a bigger deal than the altar. All the way to the point where in Jesus' day, they're saying, ah, you know, I could, I could really fool somebody by saying, yeah, yeah, oh, I wasn't at the bar last night. I swear by the altar, right? Uh, sort of associating the reliability of their words. And then when they're dragged into court or whatnot, they say, well, technically the altar isn't really sacred. It's the gift on the altar. Ah, sneaky, sneaky. I'm so bright. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus is saying, this is idiocy. It's so easy to see idiocy in somebody else's life. It's a lot harder in our own. So just finishing up. Let's see, he says, you blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. Now, obviously, sort of the highest level of swearing to them would have been swearing by God himself. And so that's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, anytime you give your word, it is as if you are associating it with God himself. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Again, this is about God. This is about God's character. And you are defaming his name with your lack of honesty. And so I want to go back to the, the text. And I want to sort of... Yes, Jesus was talking about particular oaths, but I think there was a pattern here that um, you, might, you might be able to, to see. And that pattern is, can you see how he sort of descends? Don't swear by, by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, or by your head. And, and he's sort of saying, okay, why wouldn't you swear by heaven? Well, associating the validity of my word with the creator of time and space and life, that's just inappropriate. And earth is his creation too. And Jerusalem is the place where God chose to plant his great king. And when it comes right down to it, you didn't even make your own head. You don't even determine the hairs that come out of it, right? Maybe, maybe you can go buy something so that a quarter inch out you can change the color. But right, the way that it comes out of your head, you don't get much say in. And so he is saying, 
take these words that are coming out of your mouth and be humble about it. Don't put on airs. Don't pretend like they're something more lofty than they are. Um, in fact, James sort of reiterates this point. I just want to read you a quick passage from James 4. James says, now listen you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know how, what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you want to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James is saying, you can't ultimately even commit to lunch today. You don't know what's going to happen between now and then. And, and I've, I've actually tried at times to implement this in what I say, you know. If the Lord is willing, I will go and do that. And it's sort of humbling. It's a little bit embarrassing to realize, wow, I'm not master of my own destiny. Uh, there, is, there is a humbling uh, nature in what Jesus says here. But there's one last piece that I want to touch on here before we move on. And it's this last phrase, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That's hardcore. He didn't actually say that about angry, right? I mean, he didn't say if you're angry from your brother, that comes from the evil one, or if you lust. Why, why would this be the thing that he says, anything beyond this comes from the evil one? So as, as I was sort of wrestling with this, trying to understand it, trying to understand how, how I might be guilty in my heart, what the, the flourishing life the Lord might be calling me to and us to, uh, I sort of came down to two questions. And the questions were essentially this. The first one is, why is, sin, why is falsehood so bad? Okay, anything beyond this comes from the evil one? Wow. Uh, and the other one is, why is truth so hard? I mean, uh, you know, I have a, a friend who I work with at the college um, who's, who's a professor, and through his, through his 20s, he wasn't a believer, and he said he listened to the Sermon on the Mount sometime, not as a believer, and he's like, wow, yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, obviously, who's going to say boo for truth, right? I mean, truth, it should be a no-brainer. Yeah, we're going to be honest, but somehow it seems harder than it ought to be. And so I want to sort of talk about these two pieces. Why is falsehood so bad? And at the end of the day, I come down to this. Falsehood demeans God's character. Jesus is talking to Israelites. He is talking to God's chosen people who were set apart to be a blessing to the entire world, who were set apart to be witnesses of what God was like. If you have given yourself to the Lord, if you have called yourself a Christian, you have been called to be God's image bearer on earth. You are a recipient of God's grace, and he wants others to experience the, the life that he has given you and to experience that love. 
He wants others to experience what he is like through me and through you. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is holy. He is righteous. If anybody has a right to be arrogant, it is him. And yet he sent his son. He humbled himself. He forgives again and again. And he invites us to do the same. Oh, and one more thing. God is really honest. You know, there are some things Jesus probably could have said on the night he was betrayed, and he could have gotten out of it. But he didn't. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we have the privilege of living as image bearers of God, as those who would, who would allow people to know what God looks like, falsehood is horrible. Falsehood is something that would distort who God is to people that desperately need to know him. And there's more than that. You know, there isn't just God's kingdom, right? Jesus said again and again, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he also spoke about another kingdom, and he called their ruler the father of lies. That's the evil one Jesus is talking about here. That ultimately, Jesus sets up not speaking the truth, not fulfilling what you commit to, as not only sort of leaving the domain of God's kingdom, but agreeing with the father of lies. That is a big deal. That's a big, painful deal. And there's another piece here. I think also falsehood is so damaging, frankly, because it feeds on itself. You know, it's so easy to feel like, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to do this thing that isn't quite ethical. I'm just going to do this. And yet, there's sort of two results there. One, it could go heinously wrong. And that's bad, right, because it hurts people and all of these things. But isn't it even worse, maybe, if you sort of get away with it and you sort of reinforce this, this habit of distorting the truth? How do you know how distorted you've gotten the truth once you've distorted it? I mean, you know, once you start lying, once you start being dishonest, what, what's there to stop you from continuing the pattern? Um, Nothing that significant, but I, I just can't use snooze on an alarm clock. Why is that? Because I'll only use it once today. Really, really, trust me. Um, tomorrow, though, I, you know, you use it once, and I'm just a little groggy, and I might just use it twice. If I start, using, if I start hitting snooze... A week down the line, I'm going to be hitting snooze four times. I don't know why it is that way, but maybe I just have a really nice pillow. But there's just something about that the temptation of doing something that is the easy way out. There's something about the temptation of lying that feeds on lying. And it is such a big deal. Um, I, you know, I told you I'm a university professor. I have, I have a wonderful life. Um, I, I work basically all day with people who, who pay and sort of prolong their, their time getting into the workforce so that they can come and better themselves. They can come and figure out what 
You're not supposed to be laughing at that. <laughs> um, that I, I'm kind of serious. I mean, I know some days, some days it's easy to forget, but overall, that's what university is about. My, so my neighbor, we've been neighbors a little over 10 years, started out as a, as a uh, prison worker. Then, then he went on to be a game warden and, and then ended as a parole officer. And so we have strikingly different perspectives on um, what human, <laughs> humans tend to be like. Um, it's just really interesting, you know, him, him, you know, coming back from somebody who's, you know, back to meth after, you know, serving time for meth and all of the things that come from that. And sort of like, ah, yeah, of course he's back to meth. Anyway, one of the things my neighbor, um, let's call him Mike, because that's his name. That's what we're calling him Mike. Um, <laughs> so Mike says to me, um, maybe about five years ago, he says, Keith, people lie. Everybody lies. And there was just this, like, this sickness in the way he said it, this, this mournfulness. And I'm thinking to myself, really? No. No. And so, you know, I'm I was just sort of dumbstruck. I didn't say anything. And maybe about two months later, we, we were having a conversation. He came back to the same thing. You know, everybody lies. And I, I said to him, you know, I, I don't think I lie. Yeah, I've had sort of two months to think about it, I don't think. Anyway, so because of my neighbor Mike, I started the most serious soul searching I've ever done about whether the words that come out of my mouth are true. And about, I don't know, two and a half, three months after that conversation, somebody asked me um, if I enjoyed something. I forget, a conversation or meeting of somebody. And, and I lied. Yeah, well... <laughs> you know, it wasn't a very big lie, right? <laughs> you know, it's just swearing by the, the little thing and not the big thing, right? I said something that wasn't true. And, and I think this sort of started to open my eyes to this second part, why truth is so hard. And I think, I think it comes back to where we're focused, ultimately. When my two-year-old wakes up in the morning, her first thought is, what do I want? What do I feel? Right? Am I hungry? Would I like to play with the light switch? You know, <laughs> would I like Daddy to be here? Daddy! You know, everything, no filter. It's just uh, if you were asleep. Now you're awake, right? Um, so. It's just about me. I mean, quite physiologically, her flesh is connected to her brain more closely than anything else, right? Those nerve endings are crying out for her brain. And, and really, the entire maturation process, probably, could be summarized as learning not to treat yourself as the center of the universe. Because it's hard. And ultimately, when, when you are distorting the truth, you are putting yourself as the master of the universe. You are ultimately saying, I actually know what reality should look like better than the author of reality. Right? And, our, and, and the challenge is, the challenge is to be captivated by the center of the universe by the one who is good, by the author of life. He is so, so good. 
and we talked about the, the worship team and what a service they do. This is an incredibly important entry into studying the Word of God. It's a weird thing that for the last 2,000 years of human history, uh, you know, there's not many places in my life I get together with friends and sing, right? We're, we don't go to Starbucks and sing a few songs and then have a conversation. What is this? What are we doing? Well, there's, there's a lot of things, actually, worship and praise does. But one of the most essential is it pries my eyes off myself. And it brings my eyes back to the one who is worthy of worship. It reminds me there is something that's a bigger deal than what people think of me this moment. Than whether people appreciate your opinion or don't appreciate your opinion. And ultimately, I believe the reason that truth is so hard is because the way people think about me, getting my own way, these things loom so large. These things that ultimately come out of me being the center of the universe. Me being the center of the story. If you remember when we talked about two weeks ago, there's a story you're telling yourself. There's a story you're telling yourself about, guy, I'm going to work, and somebody cuts me off. What's the story? Is the story, guy, that idiot? Because implicitly, the most important thing is me getting to work right now. Implicitly, my convenience trumps other things. Um, are we looking for God's kingdom to come? Can I be more intentional in wanting to see his kingdom? Well, part of that is beginning. Beginning opening God's words with praise. Beginning your day with remembering praise. I'd encourage you not to waste your lies. By that, I don't mean make more of them. I mean, when you realize that you have not spoken the truth, ask yourself why. Because ultimately, the gift of the conviction of sin is a gift from the Holy Spirit. When you are convicted of sin, the Lord is graciously giving you the opportunity to see something about yourself that you might not see otherwise. Why is it you're not quite honest when somebody asks you about something? What is it you're trying to get, you're trying to hide? What is it about the truth that you're having trouble with? It's actually a gift when you become aware of what the truth is and that you're not walking down that road of truth. It's a privilege. And the Lord is kind at drawing us back to truth. He's so kind. I mean, in some ways, it's funny. You know, God gets done with the creation in, what, like a chapter of Scripture? And the whole rest of the Bible is about God redeeming, God working within our brokenness. You know, the first thing after man falls, God is talking to Adam. And the last thing in the whole Bible, God is talking to humanity about his restoration, his redemption. There is a story. It's a really important story. It's a really wonderful story. And we get to be a part of it. And it's a true story. And so the only remedy, the only hope I have for being truthful, for me being truthful, for you being truthful, is to be captivated by the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to flourish is by following wholeheartedly. And we have an example. And we get the privilege 
of closing, we will have one last song of praise and worship, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have an example of one who was wholehearted on our behalf, Jesus Christ, of one who is truthful to the very end. And we get a privilege. Might the Lord burn this memory in our hearts that we come back to this, that this is the story of hope, of life, of unconditional friendship that narrates each day of our lives. Let's pray and then sing a song of worship. Oh, Lord, we do want truth. We pray that you would teach us by your spirit to love truth. Correct those areas in our life where we have believed a lie where we have believed that distorting truth is, is good enough or maybe even better. Forgive us, Lord. I pray that if there are any here that don't know your truth, the goodness of who you are, I pray that they would experience your goodness, that they would know your unconditional love, that they would know you as a loving father, a heavenly father whose ways are higher, whose ways are better. I thank you for the privilege of getting to look at your word I pray that you would embed it in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.